sermon text for this morning. Luke 22, beginning in verse 47, verses 47 through 62. This is God's holy word. It is given to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. And seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow is with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would now bless this time and open up the truth of your word. We ask that you would forgive and cleanse your servant of all sin. And Father, that what would be magnified in this time would be your name, your truth, your word. Father, that you would exalt yourself, that you would magnify the name of Jesus Christ, and Father, that in our lives we might be built up to serve him and to glorify you more. It is in Christ's name we pray, amen. Watchful waiting is a term in the medical field that perhaps many of you are familiar with or have heard before. It's, a, it's an approach to a problem that says uh, we're, we're going to, to wait a while, we're going to survey the progress of whatever is going on before there's any intervention or invasive operations. Watchful waiting. Watchful waiting is perhaps a, a good phrase to character, characterize how a Christian is to live in this world. 
We wait on the Lord to perfect his strength and his grace in us. All the time, we are called to be watchful. Watchful to our own selves. Watchful, cognizant of our own infirmities, our our own weaknesses. Reminding ourselves that we cannot be overly confident in our own strength. It's like what we read earlier from Richard Sibbs. Weakness with watchfulness will stand but strength with too much confidence fails. When we have an awareness of our weakness with a watchfulness, it is then that God can work on us. It is then that God's strength can be perfected in us. We are called to acknowledge all of these things. This passage is another reminder to look away from ourselves and to look to Christ and to the strength that our God gives to us in the gospel. There are two human failures that are put side by side. The failure of Judas and the failure of Peter. And that is done so that we are forced to reckon with our own propensity to fail. Even when we are tempted to look at some of the failings of others. Right? The, the, the big mistakes, the big sins. And we'll say, I would never do that. Right? These two are put back to back to prevent us from thinking that way. So here's our life-transforming reality this morning. As the king of glory willingly goes to the cross, we must remember that such a price, the price that Christ paid, must disallow us from ever trusting in ourselves or trusting in our own strength. Rather, since we know that we are not immune to failure, we trust that the Lord is our strength, that his grace never fails, and that his power is perfected in our weakness. So our main points this morning are this. First, a betrayal by the deceived. That's Judas, a betrayal by the deceived. Secondly, a futile defense. Third, an hour of darkness. And finally, a haunting denial. A haunting denial. Remember that uh, from last week's passage, Jesus has withdrawn to this place to pray near the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. This was part of his practice. He would routinely do this. Of course, we learn from that for our own piety that Jesus ordered his time and the location to which he went in order for him to pray. To keep the habit of prayer regular, that is what Jesus did. And we should know that that is what we ought to do as well. But Judas uses this knowledge to turn it against Jesus in order to betray him at this very moment. The Gospel of John tells us that Judas knew this place because Jesus would often meet here with his disciples. We also remember that at this point, Jesus has been engaged in an intense, extended time of prayer. He's drenched in sweat. We read that he was sweating as if he was bleeding. And he's laboring hard in prayer because he's seeking the strength of his God. He knows what lies before him. So he's looking to the Lord. He's looking to the Father and and to the Spirit to be his strength that he might endure in the midst of this apparent human weakness that he has. He knows the suffering that lies before him. As Jesus is the the, the true singer and speaker of the Psalms, we might imagine that the, the, the state of his heart at this point is that he would bring forth what Psalm 18 says of the anointed. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God in whom I take refuge, my shield the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He was praying to his father for strength. He was also praying that that his mind would be brought forth to the joy that was set before him. And that as he endured the cross, 
that he would look forward to the promises like what we see in Psalm 27. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We have seen this intense period of prayer for Jesus, but it's going to be contrasted in this passage with an unswerving faithfulness, a strength of resolve as he goes to the cross. We're going to see the strength, the courage, the confidence of Jesus as he willingly gives himself and hands himself over to the authorities. And yet again, we see an encouragement and instruction for our own lives. Those who show humility and dependence upon God in prayer and devotion, they will be given strength according to their needs. You'll be given strength according to your needs when you show weakness and humility. Faithfulness and devotion to God begin with humility and dependence upon God. Faithfulness and and devotion to God begin with humility and dependence upon God. He knows what we go through. He knows our needs. And he tells us, he commands that we would trust in him. For he weaves things, all things together for our good. If we confess our faults, if we confess our weakness, he will strengthen us. Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. We grow faint and weary. Our understanding is searchable. His is not. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Increases strength. Youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall stumble and fall. Those who trust in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This brings us then to this act of Judas conspicuous way that Judas betrays Jesus, he betrays him with a kiss. We had uh, love on the mind of our culture this past week. The act of a kiss is often connected to uh, romance, but it's much more than that. It's much more than that. A father kisses his young children. A mother kisses her adult son as he goes away to war. A couple who has been married for 65 years kisses long after their youthful vigor is gone. And in the culture of Jesus' day, the Mediterranean and Greco-Roman world, a kiss between two men like this was a sign of deep and meaningful friendship. In fact, the word for kiss is the word phileo, which can mean love. You know that word from words like Philadelphia, phileo and Adelphos, love and brother, city of brotherly love. Or philosophy, philos and sophia, love of wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. This was a, a sign of deep and meaningful friendship. So there's a stark and, and raw moment of, of Judas' betrayal here. And, and that act is meant to bring it to the fore, the, the depth of his betrayal of Jesus. This was a, a man who would have walked with Jesus, would have heard all of his teaching and all of his proclamation would have seen all of his signs and wonders. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, we have no reason to doubt that Judas was one of the ones who went out preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, casting out demons like the rest of the twelve did. So the sting of this betrayal is fierce. But there's another aspect of this betrayal we're meant to see with this kiss. It brings us back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son. In other words, pay homage to the son. 
give honor to, to the Lord's anointed. For you must honor the one who is the anointed one of God. You read it in its full Christ-centered context. And the psalm is saying, give honor to the Son of God. Recognize Jesus for who he is. Pay him honor and homage. The shepherds and the magi do this at the, the birth of Jesus, right? Or in the first, uh, the beginning of Jesus' life. And that is a, a, a foreshadowing of what the entire world is going to do one day as they bend the knee before Jesus Christ. But Judas here embodies more than his own betrayal with this kiss. It's a cosmic opposition. Cosmic opposition to God that began at the Garden of Eden. Right? Adam, who said, I want to do it my way and not the Lord's. And he rebels against his creator. He rebels against his God. And in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth huddle together, conspiring against God's authority. And so in this kiss by Judas, we see this, this cosmic opposition brought to the fore. And of course, we remember that Judas is being led to do this by Satan himself. The cosmic forces of darkness and evil are at work even in this very act of Judas. That tells us how deceived he is, as betrayed, a betrayal by the deceived. Secondly, a futile defense, a futile defense. The followers of Jesus are not going to, to go down easily. They have often shown themselves to be ready for a fight. It's no different uh, here. This crowd comes upon Jesus. Right? Many people are there, and uh, they do so because they are suspicious that Jesus or his followers will resist them by force, and that is exactly what happens, at least for a moment. So what is it with uh, this follower, this disciple of Jesus, who cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant? We're told in the Gospel of John that this is Peter, and that the servant of the high priest is Malchus. What's going on here? What we're meant to see in, in this short exchange is essentially a, a pathetic display of the military might of the followers of Jesus. And we, you can be sure that this is not the blow that Peter was going for. Now, it's, it's interesting that in this act of cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest, this man, Malchus, would have been rendered unclean and it would have thrown a wrench in the temple service, would have made it hard for the high priest to go on doing his work. But it, this is not what Peter was going for, right? He was going for a death blow. But what happens is he only cuts off the ear of this servant of the high priest. And this is all that he can do in the face of danger. It's meant to be this pathetic display of the followers of Jesus, that they really have no military might in and of themselves. They couldn't start a revolution. They couldn't do anything. It would have been squashed from the beginning. King David had mighty men who would go behind enemy lines just to get him a drink of water. Men like Joab and Abishai who could kill hundreds on their own without any help. Jesus has a man who, when he tries to fell his enemy, only strikes his ear. This highlights the, the humble condition of our Lord, doesn't it? The son of David, having military might that doesn't compare to David's at all. But the one who came to seek and save the lost, what we're meant to see, what we're meant to realize, the one who, seek, who came to seek and save the lost had to go as deep in his suffering as the problem. He had to go as deep in his suffering as the problem. Jesus enjoyed very little earthly comfort, very little earthly strength because of the road of suffering he had to walk for sin. 
He did not have David's mighty men because his mission was different than David's. King David, what did he ultimately have to offer at the end of his life? You read 2 Samuel, you read 1 Kings. Because of David's sin, because of his failure, his kingdom is rife with betrayal and deception and sin. He's telling his own son, Solomon, what servants uh, he should kill when he takes the throne. It's really, in many ways, at the end of his life, David's kingdom is an embarrassment. He has nothing to offer at the end of his life, especially to sinners. What does Jesus have to offer at the end of his life? Life to the world. Forgiveness from sin. The solution to the malady of the sickness and the wickedness of our hearts. He was rich, but he became poor. Poor in terms of his military might. He walked through this earth as basically a threat to, to none of the rulers of this world. David may have enjoyed mighty men, but David can't give you peace with God. Only Christ can do that. Only Jesus is the rightful intercessor between God and man. So it's a futile attempt at defense, but it, it creates a problem. See, Jesus needs to go to the cross with a total lack of evidence against him. And if, if Jesus would not have healed this man, the, the ear of this man, then it could have been brought up to say, well, well look at one of, what one of his followers did. And he cut off the ear of this servant of the high priest. He, he is a radical revolutionary leader. And if there's one thing that Rome wouldn't stand for, it was those who would start revolution or insurrection. So Jesus heals this man so that he might go to the cross with a complete lack of evidence against him. There's nothing that they'll bring forward. Pontius Pilate's going to say, I find no fault in this man. There's nothing I can find to send him to his death. Right? We see Jesus, what is he doing? He puts forth his hands, seemingly without fear, ready to face his death, ready to face his crucifixion. Third, this is an hour of darkness. In verse 52, Jesus makes clear that this is a a thwarting of justice. He says, you know who, who I am. You have seen me. You have heard me before. You have heard my teaching. You know that I'm not starting some kind of insurrection. So why do you come after me now? Why do you come after me like this? Sadly, as I mentioned in our prayer, we saw another mass shooting this past week. And in those situations, what do you see? You see at least 50, perhaps more, law enforcement and and special ops uh, types of, of people surround the place where the shooter is. You need all those people. You you want that because you understand this is no one to trifle with. This is a dangerous person. And oftentimes you see them taken out now on the scene, right? They don't survive once they open that kind of fire. So imagine a crowd, as Jesus says, with swords and clubs converging upon Jesus. The communication is that he is dangerous. The communication is that he is someone who exists as perhaps a threat or a menace to society. A literary critic would call this an irony of situation. That is, the opposite of what is appropriate is what is going on. Jesus is sinless, he is gentle, he is loving, he's perfectly righteous, and yet here you have this crowd converging upon him as if he's dangerous, as if he's some kind of threat or some kind of menace. You can extrapolate this irony of situation all the way to the cross. The exact opposite of what should happen is what takes place. The only sinless man to ever live 
goes to the cross and dies the death of a criminal. You could extrapolate this irony of situation all the way out to the the cosmic story of redemption. A holy God and his majesty and his holiness offended by his creatures who rebel against him, who sin against him, offend against his holy laws. What does he do? He covenants from eternity past to accomplish their redemption. The second, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity covenants to accomplish the redemption of those who have offended his holy majesty. The exact opposite of what you would expect, at least in our minds, is what happened. A holy God accomplishes redemption from sin. A lot of talk in our world of how do you repair errors of the past? How do you even out the balances? When we hear that kind of talk, as Christians, we should remember that in the only thing that ultimately matters, the salvation of our souls from sin, that our God did the opposite of what would have been the obvious just answer, wiping out human race and starting over. That is how merciful, that is how gracious he is. And he does all of it with the Son of God being treated as part of the criminal class. See, this is a familiar story to us. It's familiar to us, but it cannot become ordinary. It's a familiar story, but do not let it become ordinary. The Son of God puts forth his arms to be bound, to be taken into custody. When he had the power of the universe at his disposal. What fallen human being would not have used the power at his or her disposal? If you could call upon legions of angels. If you had the wind and the waves that would obey you. But he lays down his life willingly. Jesus tells them why. He says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. The the idea there is that this is a a short allotment of time. And it will seem as though evil has won for this short allotment of time. In order for redemption to to occur, in other words, in order for salvation from sin to be achieved, there needed to be suffering and pain and darkness before deliverance. He had to go as deep as the problem. And this is the road that Christ had to walk. And this is, what he, this is what we're learning through the cross. Is that he walked that road so that we would see and that we would understand something of our deliverance. So that we would see and that we would understand something of our de- deliverance. So that we would know in the midst of our deepest trials and afflictions. That we would understand that no matter what we go through. As we talked about last week, no matter what we go through, all of our afflictions, all of our sufferings need to exist in the shadow of the cross. All of our afflictions, need to, we need to conceive of them in the shadow of the cross. The one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him. And so the Apostle Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Our self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light This momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, we learn in Christ, we learn in the cross, that God does not save us from our sufferings. He saves us through them. He saves us through them. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan I read earlier, he says this, Glory follows afflictions, not as the day follows the night, but as the spring follows the winter. For the winter prepares the earth for the spring, 
For as the winter prepares the earth for the spring, so do afflictions sanctified prepare the soul for glory. Afflictions sanctified prepare the soul for glory. God is preparing you. In all of your trials, and all of your afflictions, he is preparing you for the fullest enjoyment of the glory of God. So Sib says, measure not God's love by God's love and favor by your own feeling. Whatever you're feeling, don't measure God's love and favor according to that. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds which hinder the manifestation of the light. See, in our suffering, the Lord is with us. Psalm 27, I believe, I believe that I will look upon the Lord in the land of the living. Remember the ultimate good that God gives us in the gospel. It's better to be in trouble with Christ than it is to be in peace without him. Finally then, a haunting denial. A haunting denial. You see, the, this passage of Peter, the denial of Peter brought right up, back to back, to this, this sin, this betrayal of Judas. And what's going on here? There's a point that Luke is, is making. So often we look at the, the, the big sins around us, the, the bad sins around us, the huge character flaws or fail, failures, failings, fallings of those around us, Christian or non-Christian, and what do we say? I would never do that. Right? That would never be me. You see this, uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, this megachurch pastor in Chicago, he had a really bad week this past week is on the radio and, and on the news and he got removed he was fired from his job when that stuff happens how are we tempted to react we're tempted to react and say I would never do that no way I would ever do that and that may be true it may be true but how is that true it's true because of God's grace we look to our own life and we look to our own hearts what we need to say is we need to say along with the Apostle Paul It's not I, it is the grace of God in me, right? Pray that by the grace of God, no one would ever reach the levels of pride and arrogance that we have seen in that situation. Take a look at how Luke frames this for us, right? Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and then right after that, you have this denial of Peter. What unfolds? Peter denies Jesus personally. You know Jesus. No, I don't know him. Then he denies the group, the rest of the group of the twelve. You were with them. I saw you with them. Peter says, no, I wasn't with them. Then he denies his homeland. You're you're a Galilean. Peter says, no, I'm not. See, it's a total and complete denial. It's not just that it's three times. That is from three different perspectives. Denies Jesus, denies the group, denies his homeland. And Luke's point is to bring the failures of Peter right up against those of Judas. And he does that so that as we think about this account, that we would not allow ourselves to look at Judas and say he's some kind of singular rebellious figure who has no enduring lesson for us because what he did was so unfathomable. What we do is we put it alongside Peter. And especially we consider that moment in verse 61. The rooster crows, Jesus turns to Peter, he looks at him. And Peter knows, he realizes, he remembers He knows there's nowhere for him to run. There's nothing for him to deny, right? Because it's all been laid bare. An unquestionable guilt. And we remember the times that we have done wrong and it can't be hidden. 
What can Peter do here? All of his promises, all of his confidence, all of his saying to Jesus again and again, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'll never leave you, I'll go to to death for you. He knows that all of those things, it's crumbled around him. Where does he go from here? Where do we go in such moments? We look at, you know, big sins of Christians and non-Christians, say, I would never do that, I would never do that. But then in the quiet of our own hearts and we look into the the, the malady that we have and the sinfulness that we have and we say, am I really that much better? And where and and in what am I trusting? We're brought back to the realization that every time that we fail, God's grace and his strength does not and cannot fail. Peter probably thought there's nowhere to go from here he didn't know how Jesus was going to get out, get out of what he was going through, but he said, There's, this is the end for me in Jesus, right? He's never going to forgive me. But Jesus restores him. And Jesus restores him and establishes him right, as they're having fish on the beach that morning. And Jesus says, I want you, I want you to be the one to go and to proclaim the grace of God, to build up the church. I want you to be one who especially teaches people what grace is. Means. And that is why Peter will call the church to trust in that beautiful, that marvelous phrase that he says in 1 Peter, the God of all grace. Peter comes to understand and to realize that this is the God of all grace. Brothers and sisters, do you trust, do you live in the power and in the salvation of the God of all grace? Yes, certainly, none of us are going to have this cosmic rebellion up to the levels of Judas where he, where he kisses Jesus in mockery and rebellion. But if anyone thinks that he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. Where is your confidence? Where is your strength? Trust that in Christ, as you cling to him, as you cling to the life that you have in him, seated in the heavenly places, that as you cling to your identity rooted in him, That you stand on him. You stand upon the rock of Christ. Your wavering flesh is no certain place to stand. All of us look inside of ourselves. And what do we do? Humble ourselves. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Trust and live by the grace of God. Peter says, be watchful. Pay attention. Be watchful. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. So he says, resist him by standing firm. In what? In yourself, no. In your flesh, no. In your promises, no. Stand firm in the faith. Firmly trusting in the one who willingly gave himself for all of your sins. Firmly trust in him. For if you do, you can be sure that all of your sins are forgiven. For this is the God of all grace. God of all grace. Look to him. Look to his sacrifice that you see exalted in this passage. That he gives himself willingly. Even in the midst of Judas' betrayal, in the midst of Peter's denial, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the God of all grace, giving himself that we might be forgiven. Trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask that through this passage, you would assure us of your love and your grace, that you would build us up through the gospel, that we might live for you, that you might build up in us faith and endurance and hope, virtue and godliness. We ask all of these things by the power of your spirit and in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's...